Hi, welcome to the podcast. In this session, we will summarize the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine Clinical Review of Polyhydramnios from the summer of 2018. Polyhydramnios, or just hydramnios, is an abnormal increase in amniotic fluid volume typically diagnosed in the second or third trimester. Amniotic fluid can be assessed with ultrasound using one or two semi-quantitative methods. The first is the single deepest vertical pocket of amniotic fluid, with polyhydramnios defined as greater than 8 centimeters. Or the amniotic fluid index with polyhydramnios defined as greater than 24 centimeters. When these thresholds are applied, polyhydramnios is reported to complicate anywhere from 1 up to 2% of singleton pregnancies. Now, the two most common pathological causes of polyhydramnios are maternal diabetes and fetal anomalies. Other causes of polyhydramnios include congenital infection and alloimmunization. When no etiology and the excess amniotic fluid is identified, polyhydramnios can be called idiopathic. But idiopathic polyhydramnios requires a diagnosis of exclusion, which means everything else has to be ruled out. Idiopathic polyhydramnios accounts for about 60 up to 70% of cases of poly in some published series and is identified in about 1% of pregnancies. Now here's the catch. Affected women are more likely to undergo C-section and to have infants weighing greater than 4,000 grams even without a diabetic diagnosis. All right, now, regarding diagnosis, which is better, the deepest vertical pocket or the AFI? Well, the truth is both have their limitations and the ability to overcall both oligohydramnios and polyhydramnios. However, the ability to overcall too low or too much fluid tends to be higher with AFI. In order to use a pocket for either AFI or deep vertical pocket, it's important to remember that the fluid pocket must be at least one centimeter wide. The measured pockets should not contain any fetal parts or loops of umbilical cord. Color Doppler can be useful to avoid overmeasurement of a pocket that contains loops of umbilical cord that may not be seen on grayscale imaging. Remember that the SMFM does state that polyhydramnios can be diagnosed with either method, but that a deepest vertical pocket of 8 centimeters be used for the cutoff for polyhydramnios and an AFI cutoff of 24 centimeters be used for the diagnosis. Polyhydramnios is further categorized as mild, moderate, or severe based on the result on AFI or deepest vertical pocket. Using an AFI, 24 to 29.9 centimeters is in the range of mild polyhydramnios. 30 to 34.9 centimeters is moderate polyhydramnios, and greater than 35 centimeters on the AFI is severe poly. For a deepest vertical pocket, 8 to 11 centimeters is mild polyhydramnios, 12 to 15 moderate, and greater than 16 centimeters of a deepest vertical pocket classified as severe. Using these definitions, mild polyhydramnios can account for about 65 to 70% of cases, moderate polyhydramnios for 20, and severe polyhydramnios would occur only in about 15% of the cases.
All right, when we come back, let's talk about the potential underlying causes of polyhydramnios in more detail. Although most cases of polyhydramnios are mild and idiopathic, when an etiology is identified, it is most commonly due to a fetal anomaly or maternal diabetes. Many of the fetal abnormalities associated with poly impair swallowing like a central nervous system abnormality, a cleft palate, migrognathia, or abnormalities that compress the trachea. They can also have neurological or muscular disorders in the fetus like myotonic dystrophy that causes difficulty in fetal swallowing. Remember that these issues like neurological or muscular disorders cannot be diagnosed on ultrasound. Fetal abnormalities that cause high output cardiac states or heart failure can also lead to polyhydramnios. This can be seen in cases of non-immune hydrops fetalis. In addition, things like fetal thyrotoxicosis can also lead to polyhydramnios. In addition, polyhydramnios may be caused by anomalies that cause fetal urine overproduction, like uteropelvic junction obstruction. This is termed paradoxical polyhydramnios. Now, the placenta can also be at fault here. Small placental core angiomas are relatively common, but rarely cause pregnancy complications. However, large placental chorioangiomas that are greater than 5 centimeters can be associated with non-immune hydrops fatalis and polyhydramnios. Lastly, remember, as we've already stated, that in addition to maternal diabetes, other potential causes of apparent isolated polyhydramnios in a structurally normal fetus include alloimmunization, and congenital infection. Now, congenital infections like parvo, cytomegalovirus, or syphilis can lead to poly by a variety of mechanisms, including fetal anemia or fetal cardiac dysfunction. Now, let's talk about the potential workup once polyhydramnios is found. The initial evaluation for poly involves targeted ultrasound to assess for fetal visible abnormalities. It's important to assess fetal growth because remember that idiopathic polyhydramnios may be associated with macrosomia and fetal growth restriction associated with polyhydramnios presents a high risk for an underlying fetal abnormality, including trisomy 13 or 18. So that's your clinical pearl. Idiopathic polyhydramnios can be associated with macrosomia, but when polyhydramnios is associated with fetal growth restriction, it raises the risk of trisomy 13 or 18. Now, in a structurally normal fetus with mild poly, consideration should be given to causes like diabetes, alloimmunization, and potentially congenital infection. Now, although there is no data to support a benefit for rescreening for gestational diabetes once the patient has passed, it may be considered when polyhydramnios is later identified in the third trimester and greater than one month has elapsed since the initial diabetic screening test was completed. All right, now we have to say a quick word about this 
initial targeted ultrasound evaluation. Remember, and it has to be noted, that not all abnormalities are detectable by ultrasound, and certainly not in every case. Specifically, fetal esophageal atresia and tracheoesophageal fistulas are among the most common abnormalities associated with poly, but these abnormalities may be difficult to diagnose by ultrasound. Additionally, as we've already said earlier in the podcast, ultrasound cannot rule out abnormal muscular or neurological disorders in the child. Well, what about amniocentesis in cases of polyhydramnios? Well, according to SMFM, currently there's no data to support diagnostic amnio for apparently isolated polyhydramnios, although amnio with chromosomal microarray analysis should be made available to every pregnant woman and not just those deemed high risk. The underlying risk that a structural or a genetic abnormality will be discovered postnatally in a pregnancy associated with otherwise idiopathic polyhydramnios can range from 9% in the neonatal period to as high as 28% when infants were followed up to one year of age. So that's a clinical pearl and is an important part of patient counseling that when even isolated mild polyhydramnios is found in an otherwise structurally normal fetus and infection does not seem to be a concern, new diagnoses may be made in the first year post-birth. Well, what about therapeutic amniocentesis to relieve pressure? Well, polyhydramnios severe enough to cause maternal respiratory compromise, significant discomfort, or preterm labor often has an underlying etiology, whereas idiopathic polyhydramnios, because it's usually mild and does not present until the third trimester, typically does not require treatment. Now, in selected cases, amnio reduction may be considered in an effort to relieve maternal dyspnea or severe discomfort. According to the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine, it's recommended that amnio reduction be considered only for the indication of severe maternal discomfort dyspnea, or both in the setting of severe polyhydramnios. It's also important to remember that polyhydramnios usually recurs after amnial reduction, making its efficacy somewhat limited. Some studies have shown reduction in reaccumulation of fluid using endomethacin after initial amnial reduction. However, meta-analysis of endomethacin therapy for preterm labor have associated this treatment with an increased risk of other neonatal morbidities like intraventricular hemorrhage and periventricular leukomalacia. So, according to SMFM, due to reported neonatal complications, in the absence of data on improved maternal or neonatal outcomes, it is not recommended that endomethacin be used for the sole purpose of decreasing amniotic fluid in the setting of polyhydramnios. All right, now that we've established that foundation, what about antepartum care? What should be done specifically? Well, reported data on whether perinatal mortality is increased with idiopathic polyhydramnios or not uh, actually has been inconsistent. In a 2015 review using birth certificate data to review more than 1.8 million singleton non-anomalous births in California, acknowledging the limitations of birth certificate data, the authors did find an ongoing risk of fetal demise greater 
in otherwise low-risk pregnancies that were affected by polyadramnios, and this was at all gestational ages, with the greatest increase in risk seen at term. For this reason, some have advocated antepartum fetal surveillance. However, the most recent guidance from the ACOG on antepartum fetal surveillance does not specifically address isolated polyhydramnios or list it as an indication for surveillance. Although antepartum surveillance is often performed in this setting, there actually is no data to suggest that such assessment decreases perinatal mortality. So here's your clinical pearl. According to the SMFM, it is suggested that antenatal fetal surveillance is not required for the sole indication of mild idiopathic polyhydramnios. It is recommended also that labor be allowed to occur spontaneously at term for women with mild idiopathic polyadramnios, and induction, if planned, should not occur at less than 39 weeks of gestation in the absence of other indications, and that the mode of delivery should be determined based on the usual obstetrical indications. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. All right, as we get towards the end of our podcast, let's move into intrapartum management. Labor in the presence of polyhydramnios, of course, can be complicated by fetal non-vertex presentations. So ultrasonographic determination of the fetal presenting part should be performed upon presentation in labor. There's also a higher rate of dysfunctional labor in the presence of polyhydramnios, according to some studies. If amniotomy is to be performed and the polyhydramnios is moderate to severe, performing a controlled amniotomy in the operating room using a spinal or a pudendal block needle has been suggested. However, a clear advantage of this approach has not yet been demonstrated. Well, what about the strip? Is the strip affected with polyhydramnios? Well, non-reassuring fetal heart rate tracings have been reported to be more frequent with poly by some, but not all, investigators. Likewise, an increased risk of postpartum hemorrhage has been inconsistently reported. But nonetheless, having uterotonic agents readily available in the delivery room is, of course, quite reasonable. Lastly, and also as part of patient counseling, remember that there's an increased rate of structural abnormalities or genetic syndromes in the neonate following a gestation complicated by apparently idiopathic polyhydramnios. So the neonatal or the pediatric team needs to be aware of polyhydramnios in pregnancy in order to tailor their postnatal evaluation. Idiopathic polyhydramnios is also associated with an increased risk of neonatal intensive care admissions in some series, but not others, and this is due commonly to transient tachypnea of the newborn. 
Remember, of course, that women with polyhydramnios are at increased risk of cord prolapse with moderate or severe poly in times of spontaneous rupture of membranes, so patients should be aware to let their physicians know as soon as possible if SROM occurred, and the nursing staff and medical staff should also be alert to the possibility of umbilical cord prolapse with spontaneous rupture of membranes. Hey, thanks for joining us for our podcast. The data for this session came from the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine Consult Series number 46 from the summer of 2018 on the evaluation and management of polyhydramnios. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls.